This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday at noon, which means it's time for our weekly news recap. As always, there's plenty of local and state news to discuss. Stories like these. The Chicago Teachers Union is endorsing one of its own for mayor. A legal odyssey that lasted nearly seven years ended today with a ruling by the Illinois Supreme Court. A former Chicago police officer is charged in a federal civil rights violation. The Chicago Board of Education narrowly voted yesterday to move ahead with plans for a new high school on the near south side. Joining us here in studio to take us behind the week's headlines is WTTW Channel 11 Chicago politics reporter, Heather Sharon. Hi, Heather. Hi, Sasha. Also here is Natalie Moore, a reporter on WBEZ's Race, Class, and Communities desk. Welcome back, Natalie. Thanks, Sasha. And ProPublica reporter Mick Dumkey rounds out our panel. Hey, Mick. Good afternoon. Now, the Chicago Board of Education, we'll start there, narrowly approved a plan to build a new high school on the near south side. Not without a lot of opposition, though. Let's hear what community activist and mayoral candidate Jamal Green had to say. What usually happens is they built this shiny new school. Uh, and they say, hey, this is the school that everyone should go to. This is the school that has this long waiting list because all of the parents want to send their kids to. And then that undermines these schools like Wendell Phillips and Dunbar. And then they, they say their attendance level is low and then they shut them down. Get us up to speed, Natalie, on the fight over this school. Where does one begin? So much. <laughs> Uh, there's been discussion for years about building a high school that would accommodate the growing South Loop population. And folks may remember that at one point there was a proposal in the previous administration to uh, close National Teachers Academy over on Cermak and make that the high school. A racial equity assessment showed that that would not be <laughs> beneficial to the school, to black children, black and brown children in the neighborhood. There was a lawsuit that plan was scrapped. Candidate Lightfoot was all on board for scrapping that plan. Mm-hmm. So now um, Chinatown has wanted a, a school. South, nice South Loop parents have wanted a school. And the proposal has been, let's build this on the former Harold Ickes public housing site and do a land swap. So technically not taking away from where housing would go, but put it somewhere else. Well, this is contested land, and so that has outraged people that you are not replacing housing and you are putting a school there. I don't think most people want to be against a shiny new high school resources. The issue that comes up is there is shrinking population in CPS, and how do you reconcile that Mm -hmm. with a growing neighborhood? And at the same time, how will the schools that are surrounded in those attendance boundaries affected. The school that I focused on this week was uh, Wendell Phillips Academy, which has the most insane uh, <laughs> boundaries that one could have for a neighborhood. And, and, uh, and to be clear, this would be a neighborhood high school that's being proposed. Right. The boundaries of Phillips go from Inglewood to the Chicago River. And so that is the neighborhood high school. Wow. Uh, Wendell Phillips is in Bronzeville. It is a black high school with a very long history. Um, Nat King Cole went there. Sam Cooke. The Harlem Harlem Globetrotters are actually from Chicago, not (laughs) Harlem. And that's where they started. Donna Washington, the street next to Phillips, is named after her. I have, I, I could be wrong, but I don't know of another Chicago Public School High School Alumni Association that is as robust as Phillips. They have a Centennial Committee. 
and they also have a Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. They are about that school. Wow. Okay. And they have, and they give both of those committees give scholarships every year to students. Phillips had a drop this year, but they they're under five hundred students, which isn't as low as some other schools. And that's, uh, I mean, we we looked at Kelly, we looked at Tilden. The question is, what happens to these existing schools? And if you say, oh, it's dwindling enrollment, we need to close, although I, I will say Phillips just got an annex to its gym this year, so there has been some investment. Okay. And the school has been a powerhouse in sports. It has won the state football championship in 2015 and 2017. This is a very long answer to say that the surrounding schools are concerned about what happens to them. Yeah. CPS says this is not a an either or, it's a both and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a, a lot of uh, contention here. And one of the strongest supporters, Natalie, of the high school, the state representative who sponsored the state funding, she's now opposing it, right? So to just bring us up to speed on where Teresa Ma is at and what she's saying. Teresa Ma has said we need a school because, again, the the parents in Chinatown have wanted it. And then after the WBEZ Sun-Times in-depth analysis came out this week, that also showed there was a memo that we had been trying so hard to get this memo. And CPS gave it to us last Friday at 5 o'clock. A memo was written last year that said there needs to be a racial equity assessment done. This could have a deleterious effect. And so this reporting has made her say, wait a minute, we have a lot, a lot of questions. We should put put the brakes on this right. before going too far. Now, this vote that happened, there are a lot of other steps that can happen. So I would not say that it's a, a done not deal. Not necessarily time to celebrate just yet. Right. Right. Uh, Mick, your thoughts on this, this controversy and, and just how that vote turned out. Yeah, I mean... It's such a fascinating and important story, I think, uh, that goes well beyond this specific high school. So um, there are people who are in favor of a new high school for the near south or south loop Chinatown area, but don't like the particular site chosen. Um, And that includes, I think, Representative Ma, who came out after using her clout in Springfield to get $50 million allocated to start this school, uh, now has come out against the proposal for this site, saying that it is uh, insulting and potentially racially divisive to build a school on former public housing land. And so there are uh, people who are for the school for a lot of different reasons. There are people who are against it for a lot of different reasons. I think the opponents in general, um, certainly from the Ickes area, are really against it, both because they say the CHA has not followed through on its commitments Mm -hmm. to build more housing there. There is housing uh, that's almost ready to open, but there's still hundreds of units behind what they have promised. Um, And also because they feel like this follows a pattern of institutions being closed in the black community, and then there suddenly is money found to reopen uh, and make investments in infrastructure in other neighborhoods that are gentrifying. And so this this story seems to touch on all of these uh, sensitivities. And Heather, a former Chicago school board member has even called for 
Chicago's inspector general to investigate this this whole thing. That's right. So this vote by the Chicago Board of Education was four to three. So that's as narrow as it gets. And it would have failed had Mayor Lightfoot not intervened in a clear exercise of mayoral power like we have not seen since the Daly era or the Rom era where she ousted Dwayne Truss, who was that former school board member who mm-hmm. said we need an investigation and replaced him with former alderman Michael Scott, who voted for the high school location. Now, that is clearly an indication that that is why so many mayors fought for so many years to keep mayoral this board mayoral appointed and not elected, which it will start to be in 2024. It, it, this plan also relies on at least $7 million in tax increment financing funding that funding has to be approved by the Chicago City Council. So this is going to be a political hot potato for many months to come. Yeah. Mick, you recently wrote a story about another controversial deal involving the mayor and and public housing property. What are the details there? Yeah, that's uh, it's actually a parallel story about the use of of now vacant uh, land that uh, formerly was home to public housing. Uh, This is on the near west side. Uh, the former Abla Homes uh, area, not far from the University of Illinois, Chicago. And um, as we've discussed on this show before and elsewhere, uh, the mayor is backing a plan where the CHA would lease 26 acres, a big chunk of property, to the Chicago Fire uh, soccer team. They want to build a practice facility there. And the fire is owned by Joe Mansueto, who is a billionaire, one of the most prominent and most prosperous uh, business leaders in Chicago. And the mayor's gotten fully behind this. Um, last week, the city council, uh, after some uh, interesting legislative maneuvers, uh, ultimately signed off on a zoning change needed to push this uh, plan forward. But during that debate, uh, you heard a lot of similar kind of arguments for and against that we've heard around the school. Um, proponents saying uh, you know, this is going to be good for the community in addition to, you know, wanting to keep the fire in Chicago. This is going to spur additional development, which uh, promise us, you know, we promise will lead to more housing. And then opponents saying, no, the CHA has not uh, kept its uh, obligation, kept up with its obligations to this point, still needs to build even more housing over at Abla than they do at Ickes. Um And it was interesting, even some people who, some of the older people who backed uh, this zoning change to make the fire facility a reality. They even took turns uh, dissing the CHA and uh, expressing disappointment and dismay at their slow pace of housing construction. Wow. Um, so. Something else that happened at Wednesday's Chicago School Board meeting, new data was released about enrollment. Natalie, you, you talked about that a little bit earlier. What exactly did we learn, Heather, about where Chicago stands now? That Chicago is no longer the third largest school <gasps> district in the nation. <laughs> Say it, it is so. the fourth largest school district in the nation behind New York, L.A., and Miami-Dade, which is, I think, an indication of why these issues of new schools and what schools should get investment is really fraught in a district that is losing students. How do you take care of those students who find themselves in smaller schools that don't have the resources of schools such as Peyton or Northside College Prep? And that, I think, is why sort of there is so much sort of, for lack of a better word, angst and concern about what this means for the future of the district. Because we also see 
I mean, growth in some it, it's it's mirroring the growth in the city. Mm-hmm. The higher income is growing, and poverty is growing, and you have a middle class that's shrinking. So, you know, there's um, this probably isn't fair, but I'll say it anyway. There are quasi public private schools on the north side, absolutely in areas that are uh, rich. <laughs> And True. they're growing and they want annexes. And I mean, even in the South Loop, the South Loop Elementary School. And then you have other places that have declining enrollment. Mm-hmm. And then you have lots of charter schools that have opened and that has siphoned off. So it's like this. It's it's sometimes hard to talk about CPS in one breath because it's a patchwork of different things happening all across the city based That's on demographics. Yeah. Patchwork. So I think it's really easy to think, well, this debate is we need a new high school for all of these new families that have moved to the South Loop and Chinatown. But there are plenty of high school seats for everybody who lives in those neighborhoods. It's just that for whatever reason, Phillips and Tilden and the other high schools aren't something that aren't somewhere parents and I, I will say it, it's it's white parents, it's Asian parents who don't see those schools as options for those kids. Yeah. And that is re- puts a lot of stress on the selective enrollment system, which means that all of those kids are trying to leave their neighborhoods to go to places like Peyton or Northside College Prep. Mm-hmm. So there aren't really there are a finite number of selective enrollment seats. So then parents are saying, OK, well, what if we build a new different neighborhood high school. So it's a solution to the same problem. But it's just sort of coded in 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 truly just just racist ways in some ways, because this is sort of another way that segregation in Chicago is sort of continues to reverberate into all of our lives. And Heather's right. These nice white parents aren't yep. going to send their kids to the South Side School. The racial equity assessment that was done previously on the NTA plan said, look at Dunbar. Dunbar is closer to the South Loop than Phillips is because the argument has been Phillips is too far. Okay, you don't want to go to Persian Road. Dunbar is a beautiful facility. And so why aren't we rethinking? Now, to be fair, there are some black parents who are like, hey, don't come into this school trying to change things for the nice white parents. Yeah. But how do you you have a facility that could that has tech, that has adult services that could have the bilingual, you know, address some of the needs that the Chinatown parents have in a great facility. There's always been a lack of imagination in this city when it comes to dismantling segregation, whether it's in housing or if it's in schools. And so the solution becomes, let's just do something new to appease this one group without thinking. And even though CPS is saying, no, this is for black students and I believe that they believe that. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they're, they're saying this is for everybody. That's going to be one of the most diverse schools right. in the city. They say, even though you know, the funding for it came from a representative from Chinatown. The political push for it came primarily from parents, affluent parents in the South Loop, and now they want to take the land from a black community uh, to actually build the school. So they're saying, well, let's let's include everybody in it. I also think it's interesting. Very quickly to note that some of these debates have been had already. We're going through this again. Natalie mentioned the debate over potentially closing the um, very highly performing elementary school that's already on the same in the same area uh, a few years ago and turning that into a high school. Yeah. Well, there is land at Ickes was already taken to build a running track and a uh, turf field 
for Jones High School, which is a selective enrollment school in the South Loop. Down the South <laughs> Loop, and so there's this perception that this land uh, that was supposed to be that was public housing supposed to be used for replacement housing that it's just available when we need it for something else at the same time all these other cross-currents are going on. Yeah, before we move on, we'll wrap this section up with a comment from Christopher on YouTube who says, My thoughts is the process of getting it approved seems shady. Removing a school board member who was against the school with an alderman and then replacing that alderman with his sister... Dot, oh, dot, yeah, that's dot. the other half of it, that Alderman Michael Scott was uh, replaced by his sister Monique Scott, an appointment made by Lori Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Heather, the Illinois Supreme Court issued a ruling this week having to do with police misconduct files. Can you tell us more? It's complicated, but essentially Charles Green, who was convicted of a quadruple murder back in the 1980s, was released from prison in 2009 and has been trying to prove his innocence ever since. And to do that, he wants 48 years of closed police misconduct files to look for evidence that he was essentially framed. Now, the city has said um, that will take us 10 years and it will cost us, you know, just millions of dollars. And he has said, well, they're public records and I want them. And that turned into a legal odyssey that lasted the better part of a decade that ended with the Illinois Supreme Court saying the city did not violate the Freedom of Information Act by rejecting this request because there was an injunction keeping these files private as part of another lawsuit. Now, these files are public record and Charles Green and his attorney have gone ahead and filed a new request for all of these files. So I guess maybe in another decade, we'll get to see them eventually. The larger issue is, is that essentially the city tried to settle this case several years ago by paying Charles Green $500,000. That settlement did not make it through the city council because several progressive older people said that's this is hush money, essentially. So he didn't get anything. The lawsuit continued. The Supreme Court has ruled. And the former inspector general, Joe Ferguson, said, let's take this opportunity to make as many of these files public as we can by creating a database to increase transparency and to help fight against, you know, police misconduct and increase accountability. That proposal also failed because it didn't do enough for progressive older people and it did too much for more conservative older people. And we are in limbo. All right, Mick, the city's inspector general came out with a report yesterday about police misconduct settlements. What were the findings? Well, the findings are basically that uh, the city is not doing an adequate job of evaluating uh, police misconduct cases that are resulting in uh, enormous expenditure of public funds. Um, Most years, we're talking tens of millions of dollars in settlements and, um, you know, the cost of uh, settling these lawsuits, um, whether this, you know, sometimes they, they go to, to trial and the city has to pay um, for them. But it's costing tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And the inspector general's report basically said the city is just handling these on literally a case by case basis rather than doing analysis to, to identify patterns and find potential ways to not only reduce costs, but get at the roots of the problem so that there are fewer misconduct yeah. allegations and incidents. I want to stick with police misconduct and ask you another question, Mick. A federal grand jury indicted a former Chicago police officer for an alleged kidnapping and sexual assault back in 2019. The details are disturbing, but I want to just try giving listeners a, a general understanding of, of what this 
longtime officers accused of. Sure. I mean, I would uh, people who want the details, by the way, should read John Seidel's excellent write up that was in the Sun-Times a couple of days ago. So I'm, uh, you know, reliant on his reporting, just doing my sourcing. But as I understand it, you're right. There was a former sergeant, a uh, 29 year veteran of the department who was alleged to have committed this assault and kidnapping on uh, I think it was the west side of the city a few years ago. Um, and then, as John noted, uh, there is also a lawsuit against this officer um, with some specific allegations that essentially tried to pick up uh, a person, a uh, transgender person, and uh, there's some kind of salacious details that went on. But it was, it was an ugly incident that, that, again, I think gets to the issues we're talking about here about police accountability and uh, the transparency you know, transparency of trying to look into these cases and prevent them in the future. Victims of the July 4th mass shooting in Highland Park, they filed multiple lawsuits on Wednesday. Give us the details there. Well, to pursue a theme of our conversation today, it's complicated, uh, but there are multiple attorneys, law firms, and of course, uh, plaintiffs in this case. The bottom line, though, I think is that they are trying to take a step beyond a lawsuit just um claiming, you know, damage. Obviously, they were victims of the shooting, but they're trying to take aim themselves at uh, gun manufacturing industry. In this case, Smith & Wesson, as we heard in the clip just a, a few seconds ago, um, you know, they're basically saying that uh, deceptive marketing made this weapon that was used in the shooting appealing to the alleged shooter. And this is really following in the footsteps of a victory for parents of the Sandy victims of the Sandy Hook massacre mm -hmm. earlier this year, they won a lawsuit um, where they got, I think, $73 million in a settlement against uh, Remington, a different gun maker. Um, you know, this is for years, people who are trying to advocate for accountability for, you know, gun manufacturers, the gun industry have tried various legal means, various paths to try to hold them accountable in court. I mean, I was remembering as, you know, thinking about this conversation today, uh, Mayor Daley, uh, former Mayor Daley in 1998, tried to sue gun makers and hold them responsible for violence that was happening in the city of Chicago. And that legal effort ultimately failed. Mm. The new lawsuits are, are finding what they think is a loophole in some of the protections that have been uh, made for gun makers. In this case, they're targeting the marketing and saying that it's deceptive marketing. And uh, so, again, yeah. uh, there was some success earlier this year. We'll see what happens with the Highland Park. Very seats. interesting stuff. I want to move our way over to another North Shore suburb, Evanston. Northwestern University says it plans to tear down Ryan Field and build a smaller stadium. That stadium's uh, almost 100 years old, Mick. Right. How do you think neighbors and alumni, students currently go there? How are they going to feel about yeah, that? Yeah, and suckers like me who are season ticket holders <laughs> for Northwestern football. Uh, I'm glad you asked because... Uh, <laughs> I have thoughts. Yeah, the average Saturday afternoon, even when the team is good, which so far this year, unfortunately, they're not, but even when the team is winning, if the stadium is full, it's usually half to two-thirds the visiting team, fans of the visiting team. And so uh, Northwestern has an atmosphere problem, among other things. Um, so this current plan is to reduce the capacity of the of the new stadium from uh, 47,000, which current Ryan Field is, to about 35,000, which is 
pretty small by major college football standards. Now, some would argue that Northwestern doesn't play major college football. But, uh, you know, I think the, the point is that they're trying to not only build a first-rate facility, which like all the stadiums these days they could use for other purposes. Seems concerts, like it needs an upgrade. But it needs an upgrade. It it doesn't look 100 years old, but it looks pretty old. So yeah. this fan is all in favor of a new strategy. <laughs> it's going to be expensive, though, Natalie. $800 million. You know, there are three Northwestern graduates here <laughs> and um i have to say as a i went there for graduate school but i went to a historically black college for undergrad so which, football, which one natalie i don't have to say it <laughs> please tell us howard university yeah okay. and so the football <laughs> games there are much different where you don't even go to the game you're just outside of the game not socializing having a good time so I don't even know what the Big Ten football experience is like, but I am motivated to go to a game at some point so I can experience the difference and see what this money would be spent on. Heather, in uh, Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood, opposition to the city's last scrap metal shredding operation, that seems to be growing. Tell us about this latest effort here. It is. So, you know, there was all sorts of controversy about the move of General Iron from Lincoln Park to the southeast side that was eventually blocked by the city. And it focused a lot of attention on, as you said, the last remaining facility that can take cars and other sort of, you know, discarded metal and basically recycle them. But to do that, it it is a polluting business. And right now it's in Pilsen, which is experiencing a lot of gentrification, a lot of housing pressures. And there are people there who say, look, if this if this operation is not appropriate for the for Lincoln Park, it is not appropriate for Pilsen. And the the facility has had some struggles with complying with EPA regulations. So there's some hope that there can be enforcement mechanisms to sort of either shut this down or to change its operations. But it's, I think, another story that sort of says, well, if if this isn't if this isn't appropriate for a white area of the city, why do we tolerate it in a primarily Latino neighborhood? And there are a lot of questions about, you know, that. And also, if you are, you know, somebody who's concerned about the environment, don't you want facilities that recycle these sort of, you know, situations? You don't want these, you know, this stuff ending up in landfills. So it's a really, really difficult decision and one that I think really sort of illuminates what we've been really talking about, except for the Northwestern part, all all hour is sort of the struggle in sort of, you know, who does the city serve? Who does the city protect? Mm -hmm. And how do those people get to shape their own futures? Such a good point there. Let's talk about the migrants who have been arriving in, in busloads from Texas. More have arrived here this week. Give us the latest on the situation for these folks and the sort of help that they're getting, Heather. So I did a little bit of math before we came on the air, and just in the past seven days, 675 migrants from Texas have arrived in Chicago. Now, that is not, you know, a lot if you think about the city's population of nearly 3 million people, but it is a significant pressure on the city's shelter system and its its ability to sort of offer help to these people who are coming to Chicago with not really more than anything other than the clothes on their back. Mm-hmm. So... 
and, had, and sick sometimes, and, yes, you know, and needing medical need, attention, needing medical care. And so it has really turned into not sort of a response by the city, but a response by the city and the state and the surrounding suburbs. And the latest plan calls for some of these immigrants to go to displays right. and, uh, you know, to get help there as they sort of transition. But I think the question is, is, you know, these buses have arrived every day this week. And at what point can the system no longer begin to help people and what happens then I think is it, it's a it's a question that a lot of city officials and state officials frankly are, are struggling to deal with yeah to your earlier point Heather Shamrock Bloom on YouTube says environmental injustice is a real thing yeah I want to shift to the election early voting in the November 8th election began uh, people have also been opening their mailboxes and they're finding applications for mail-in ballots. Um, let's talk about a couple of choices, though, that they'll be facing. There's a so-called workers' rights amendment on the ballot. That's right. So this, What's that going to do? It's designed to basically ensure that everybody in Illinois has the right to organize their employer and that that it essentially makes it a part of the Illinois Constitution that this would never be a be a state where lawmakers could pass legislation that would sort of restrict those rights. Now, this is really a legacy of former Governor Bruce Rauner, who wanted to sort of reduce unionization in, in Illinois and to sort of he saw unions as a political opponent and he took direct aim at them. This is sort of the union sort of, you know, ecosystem responding and saying, we're going to make sure that even if another Republican governor is elected in the future, mm-hmm. um, they won't be able to target these uh, the union rights, essentially. Any other interesting things on the ballot that our listeners should be aware of? I mean, there's a governor's race. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard anything that about thing. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting it, in the eyes of the beholder. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people are watching the Secretary of State's race. Alexei Janulius is the Democratic nominee. He also just got a million dollars from Governor J.B. Pritzker, who's been gotten get, getting out the checkbook for election time in, in recent days. And, you know, the backstory there is, of course, that Pritzker backed city clerk Ana Valencia over Janulius. But now everybody's one big, happy Democratic family. So, you know, (laughs) million dollars makes people happy. It does. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Natalie, have you been noticing political ads? I don't see them much. Uh, No, and that's probably because we don't have a television (laughs) right now. Um, Uh, Well, you know, here we've talked in the past few weeks about these controversial political ads some particularly by this group that calls itself People Who Play by the Rules. Governor Pritzker is now threatening to sue this pack and uh, TV stations that run their ads. You have details on that, Heather? So this ad in particular includes um, a woman saying in the initial version of the ad that Governor J.B. Pritzker fired her because he she was a political opponent of him. And J.B. Pritzker says, look, you can't say that. It's not true. You have no facts to support that. And uh, people who play by the rules pack, which is run by radio guy Dan Proft, said, yeah, actually, we don't. So they edited the ad to take that allegation out Uh, of the ad, um, which is, you know, usually a pretty good indication that you have made a claim that you can't cannot support. I feel like every week we're talking about a different ad by these people who play well, by the rules. you know, rules. Uh, Dan Proft is yeah. really taking on a fascinating racial angle yes. with his work. So the woman in this ad is a black woman. Um, and then those mailers that have been going out that look like newspapers oh, yeah. have been going. I, mean, I don't know everywhere that they're going, but they are hitting 
the South Side. Someone tweeted me and said, have you seen them? Yeah. I said, no. The next day I was at my mother-in-law's house and I saw them. And I was like, oh, so and this is in South Shore. Yeah. So I, and, uh, I, Pritzker has a lot of black support. And so I... It was not lost on me that, oh, if he is trotting, if Proft is trotting out this black woman to say Pritzker fired me despite there being no proof and putting these mailers out that are, again, that look like legitimate newspapers that I wouldn't say are just anti. I mean, it's fine if you are not for this candidate, but we're just seeing so much misinformation in the culture that we're in right now of fakeness. You know, it goes beyond political opposition it's going into fabrication well yeah i mean and dan prof just to be clear is behind those fake newspapers as Mm -hmm. well so dan is a longtime conservative political operative in illinois although he now lives in florida um closer to uh his new crush i think ron DeSantis, um uh, governor of florida uh who is also sending uh you know Asylum seekers um, to other states yes. up north, mm-hmm. um, and Dan is uh, funded primarily. The people play by the rules. Super PAC is funded by Richard Uline, one of the wealthiest donors of conservative causes in Illinois and around the country. And you know his ads that are pushing these racial buttons. I think are you know Natalie. They're not designed to try to chip off black support from J.B. Pritzker. I mean, if he got that, I think that I'm sure he would welcome it. But they're really tra- designed, in my opinion, to make white people feel good about voting for a right wing candidate running for governor. Um, if you have a black person on the ad saying J.B. Pritzker did her wrong, um, it's sort of another path to the same goal of showing, you know, black people allegedly committing crimes on videos, which he's also done in in some of these other ads. So it's all part of a scheme to try to play on different kinds of fears. But he he knows that his voting base for the right is is not on the south side of Chicago. I I think it's perhaps even more insidious than that. I think that the only way that I think Darren Bailey, the Republican nominee, could defeat J.B. Pritzker is if there is a significant drop in turnout in Chicago among black and Latino voters. And I think when you see those mailers, especially if you're somebody who's not sort of plugged in or sort of really sort of understanding sort of what they're looking at, yeah. you can sort of see that and say, gosh, I don't I don't know. I just I don't want to vote. I don't want I don't want to vote for a bad guy. I don't want to vote for somebody who's making me feel queasy. And and that is helpful for a Republican candidate who's going to he's going to win downstate he's going to win central illinois yeah so it it, it doesn't even have to be that you go out and you vote for darren bailey yeah, i think you're totally right it could just yeah. be that you're somebody who's like who doesn't want to vote for somebody who mm-hmm. might have done a black woman you're putting, wrong. You're putting yeah. a seed of of doubt right. that's yeah. right there. exactly right yeah. which is why jay pritzker was like i will sue you you take that down right now mm-hmm. so the long tradition folks of reporters listening in in real time to police scanners, that's about to change. What are your thoughts, Mick, Mick on the uh, proposed changes to public access to the scanner and whether any of us should be alarmed about this? Well, first of all, just very quick um, summary of this story. What's happening here is the Chicago Police Department is taking steps to move more and more of its radio communications, its internal radio communications, uh, 
even more to make them more even more internal so that uh, people cannot tune in on a scanner and listen in real time. Now, these communications are going to be available on different websites. Um, already, you can go and you can find archives. And I've done this in reporting before. You can find archives of 911 calls and police responses right. poking around. But in real time, you can't get this. And this has been very useful for uh, decades for reporters. Forever. Right? To listen to this and be able to respond when something comes over the radio that is clearly uh, news events in the public interest. People can go to the site, uh, you know, the scene, and uh, find out what's happening right then and there for themselves. And now to have at least a half-hour lag time, you know, is going to really cause some problems, I think, complications for public transparency and, and for, you know, letting the public know what's going on internally with, with the police chatter. Yeah. That's a big one. Uh, switching gears, as airline travel is taking off, flight attendants hit the picket lines both Midway and O'Hare this week. I want to play a little bit of what Southwest Flight Attendant Corliss King told WTTW. We're tired. We do not want to continue to have to wonder if we're going to have a hotel when we fly 14 hours a day. We need support when we're assaulted on the aircraft. We've been subjected to conditions in this economy and in the industry that are unprecedented. And we want Southwest to come to the table and work with us. What are they asking for, Mick? Well, they're asking for the usual, I would say, you know, better benefits, better mm-hmm. protections on and the workplace. And any of us who have uh, flown over the last few months has at least a glimpse of how difficult it is, um, you know, just even as a passenger. But if you're paying attention, getting outside your world at all, just to watch the flight crews trying to do their work, trying to keep people happy, trying to keep people safe, most importantly, I mean, they've got a really difficult job. So... Uh, you know, this connects back with what Heather was talking about just a few minutes ago about organizing rights in the state of Illinois. And uh, this is happening in different industries, and now we're seeing it in the airline industry again as well. I don't know about you guys, but, uh, you know, in traveling lately, I've been seeing a lot of cancellations and a lot of delays. And I, I wonder what you think these labor issues will do. Will they make flying even worse? Yes. I mean, I, I th- <laughs> Anyone who's traveled this summer has probably experienced something. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, just last month for me, just out the blue, your flight's canceled and you can't leave until the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had to come to work. It happened to my mom when um, she visited. She couldn't leave until the next day was canceled, like that morning. Yeah. And canceled. then on top of that, the shortage of pilots. I think that we are going to see, pun intended, a very turbulent path. <laughs> Good with one. with air travel for for some time to come, given I mean the the pandemic has just opened up all these issues in in my opinion that were already there bubbling, but now it's just full frontal and they have to be addressed. Or the consumers are going to have. To, I think we may have to fly less. I mean, something's going to have to give for sure somewhere. Let's take a look at a couple development stories. First, Chicago's downtown, it took a big hit during the pandemic, as everything else did. Mayor Lightfoot, though, is taking steps to bring the loop back to life. And one of the ways that she wants to do this is a proposal for the LaSalle Street Corridor. What's that, Natalie? So the LaSalle Street Corridor, the financial district, and trying to bring a 1,000 units of housing there. And we know that Google is going to be coming to the state of Illinois building. And I believe, is it? Heather, a third 
earmarked for affordable housing? Is that the correct number? Right. So essentially, if these developers agree to turn these uh, historic bank buildings into new housing, they'll get city subsidies to help that. But in return, they have to set aside 30 percent of those units for low and moderate income Chicagoans. And what's fascinating to me about this, I've, I've always I've been steadfast in saying that Chicago's strength and weakness is its vastness. And so affordable housing ends up being clustered in certain areas because we have some. I mean, if we were in Manhattan, and I'm not saying that they don't have their own housing issues, but that's just one city that's an example of affordable, low-income, even public housing being integrated into the city Mm -hmm. because you have finite space. And because we have so much space here, we have been able to create these de facto or – figuratively gated communities. And so there has long been, I shouldn't even say a dearth, but like no affordable housing (laughs) downtown. And this could be an exciting project if developers are on board with it and they're getting the subsidies. So it's definitely something to watch. And can it bring affordable housing to the loop? Yeah. The city is also looking to, uh, repurpose some vacant warehouses along Pershing Road. Tell us about that, Natalie. Yeah, this, and, uh, you know, I had an internship there way back in the day when CPS's (laughs) headquarters used to be at 1819 West Pershing Road. Um, So it's four buildings that are there, which were actually part of this country's first office park. And the city owns these buildings now. There are four of them, about 600,000 square feet. And the city has had a hard time redeveloping this stretch Um, And so what they're doing now is instead of bundling them as all four buildings, they're doing it as one. And before the city even put out this RFP, um, I did a story about this week, did a story on it this week. I um, in in Atlanta, there's a place called Pond City Market. That is a former Sears warehouse. Mm -hmm. And the first time I went, I was like, this reminds me of Pershing Road. Why can't we have this on Pershing Road? And, and, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all model. McKinley Park is much more of a bedroom community. Um, I think residents there are hoping for the blue-collar um, jobs there to turn into green-collar jobs. But Maurice Cox of the Commissioner of the Planning and Development Department said, when I saw these buildings, I thought, look at all this potential for multi-use. So housing, entertainment, um all kinds of green jobs, rooftop, yeah. and the University of Chicago students last year came up with the concept called McKinley Mills that had permeable sidewalks and, you know, thinking about the, the rainwater. So I, I, I think it's true that there's just so much potential, you know, who mm. wants to take this on. But if you do it one building, maybe there will be some interest in trying to do, you know, what, 600,000 times four. <laughs> that, that is a lot. Um, but the residents also said, look, we're not trying to be the next Wicker Park. We're not trying to turn this into, you know, destination nightlife. Um, but yeah. the proposals are due by the end of the month, so we'll see what um, creativity comes out of it. Just about 30 seconds here, Mick. The city's property owners got good news from the mayor. There will not be a property tax hike next year. Should any of us be surprised, though, given that the mayor's running for re-election? Uh, no. Any smart politician <laughs> knows you should spend more, build more, and tax less before an election. <laughs> so there you go. She didn't have the support for it. It doesn't sound like in the city council and so uh, we'll just have to wait 
till next year, till our tax bills go up. Going to squeeze one one final story. It's a weirder one that I saw this week involving evic- eviction notices. Heather, yes, they were handed out in a tent city uh, in, in Tui Park. That's in the far north side, Rogers Park neighborhood. What happened? Well, you know, this story was was broke, broken by Jay Ward over at Block Club Chicago, and he reported that these fake flyers were created by a DePaul University freshman who is running for mayor, thinks she's running for mayor, wow. and she wanted to drive traffic to her website. And then, of course, this really alarmed the people who have been living so in this So she made park. fake flyers saying, you got to go. Right. Well, and Did we just not, talk about all this fake stuff yeah, Not, not just wow. you have to go, but the city is going to move you to an, a, a Gold Coast hotel. Please be here at this time wow. yeah. to get on the bus to go. She should have just stuck with promising to lower taxes. Yeah, right. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to WTTW Channel 11's Heather Sharon, WBEZ's Natalie Moore, and Mick Dumkey of ProPublica. Have a good weekend, folks. Thank, Thank you. you. you too. Thanks.